This is The First Years, a podcast about the unicorns of American agriculture, first-generation farmers, and the guts, grit, determination, and business prowess required to be one. Well, welcome to this episode of the podcast. I'm Annalisa Lack, and I'm here talking today with Chalmers Carr. And Chalmers is a farmer from South Carolina. So, Chalmers, tell us a little bit about your farm. Uh, my farm is located in Ridge Spring, South Carolina. We grow peaches and bell pepper and also broccoli. So, um, kind of unusual to have um, stone fruit, a permanent crop, along with um, you know, annual crops like vegetables and everything. But we're, we've grown this farm from about 1,500 acres now to we're harvesting over a little over um, 7,500 acres annually. So, um, you know, and we employ quite a few people. Um, just built this thing up from we took over ownership in 2001 and have just built it up to where it is today and very proud of it. That's so amazing, the journey that you and your wife, Lorian, have been on. Um, one thing that I want to point out, Chalmers is um, being very humble. He is one of the largest peach producers in the country, but you didn't start out that way. Can you tell us a little bit about growing up um, a military kid and, and why you decided that you wanted to get into farming? Sure, and yes. Um, coming from a different kind of angle at this thing, being a first-generation farmer, I was very fortunate growing up that my parents, my dad was in the military and moved around quite a bit with um, with that, obviously, especially as his career really started to take off. So every summer, since the time I was 11 years of age, I was sent home to my mother's family in North Carolina um, to work on the farm. So I would spend my summers most of the time while they were moving from one location to another, and got involved, um, did tobacco first, and then got involved in peaches and started working in the fields with the migrant crews harvesting and, you know, everything like that and just worked my way up through that. And by the time I was 17, I was actually running a packing shed. So a lot of unique opportunities. The only bad thing about it was is I spent my summers working and never got to really enjoy the benefit of being on the farm the rest of the year where everybody was hunting and fishing and doing things like that. I I spent my summers at the best possible time for me, but also the worst possible time because you lost out on going on summer vacations and going to the beach. But it taught me at a very young age um, work ethic and everything like that. So having those experiences really was what's able to me to launch my career where I'm at today. Yeah, that that's funny that you you didn't know the joys of farming. You knew the work of farming before, before you started out. <laughs> exactly. That was you know I I can remember at one time with just one uncle that was really one of my mentors. I've been fortunate enough to have two uncles and my father that have all played very key roles in my life. But the uncle that I live with, my mother's um, second oldest brother, I lived with him during the summers, and he was um, never much. He was a very dry person. Never had much. Um, he was a workaholic, basically. But one time we did get to go out in the middle of the summer where we had drained a pond for irrigation. And when ponds get so low that you sane them for the fish that's in there. And basically, he, I can just remember him laughing and he and I out there in this middle of this pond, waist deep, and catching these fish where you're basically just trying to scoop them up in nets and everything. And we were just <laughs> laughing because you're falling over, tripping on stuff in the bottom of the ponds. But one of my fondest memories of him was doing that because most of the time around him, it was all work and no play. But that was one of those memories that just sticks with you. Yeah. So then you went to Clemson University. What did you study there? So I started off in Clemson at financial management. I've always been good with numbers. And, um, you know, as I was growing up and there working on the farm, I was already getting into budgets and stuff like that and helping my uncle with that farm part of the farming operation. So started out in financial management, didn't really know much about ag um, careers and ag, um, the ag college at all. So 
found when I got to Clemson, being a land-grant university, got involved with um, a fraternity and found out that there was a program called Ag Econ or Ag Economics and switched my major to Ag Econ and um, in business and got my degree in that and really taught me an awful lot. That's where you get your exposure to accounting and financial management and, and many other production systems as well. But that was the basis for my my education, which really prepared me to go off and as much as college can to become your own business owner and everything else like that. So upon graduation from college, where in my last year I thought I was going to go in the military, you know, most people in college, they're sitting there the last year, what are you going to do? And I actually had an opportunity to apply to OTS and go for a pilot slot. But timing be what it was in 1990 with the military, we had a lot of military cutbacks and all those pilot slots were taken away from um, everybody except for the academy graduates. So um, the Air Force informed me that I would not be able to go in and fly, but I could become a navigator or something like that. And I then kind of just stepped back at it and said, well, you know, I actually applied for grad school, got in and was going to go back to grad school. But I was working on a farm in North Carolina at the time, and the gentleman offered me a management position to come in and, and manage his farm. And so I skipped out on military, skipped out on going back to grad school, and started my farming career working for um, Carolina Frozen Foods there in North Carolina. And that was my first step. And then from there, it launched boarded me down to Florida, where two uncles that I mentioned earlier, um, John and Edward DeWitt, my mother's brothers, put me in business in Florida into a very small operation, about 450 acres of peaches. And then I diversified into, um, into pepper and um, specialty crops as well. And that was my very first farm. I bought that farm in 1992 and um, ran that until we moved to South Carolina in 96. So it was a very How good experience and a very, you know, getting started with a career like that, not having a farm to go to. All of a sudden I was given the opportunity to to lease one and then buy that one and um, turn it into something. And that started my career until I moved to South Carolina. How old were you when you bought your first farm? Oh, I was 22 years of age. <laughs> um, so was that I was very scary? young. And, you know, just again, the unique opportunity. Um, the My uncles both worked for their great uncle, who L.G. DeWitt had a trucking company, had several farms up and down the eastern seaboard, and he was also into NASCAR racing, where he owned the North Carolina Motor Speedway and half of the Atlanta Motor Speedway. So, all this was um, owned by a gentleman who had no sons, and so he used his nephews, um, you know, to um, um, to kind of run the farms. And I'd worked for both of these gentlemen growing up, and so they put me. He died, unfortunately, the year I graduated from college, and so the estate was looking at what they wanted to do with some of the farms, and they both ended up buying the, their respective farms. And there was one in Florida, and they they helped me get in business down there. So. I remember my Uncle John telling me, you know, you can write a business plan and, you know, put it up and I'll carry you over to meet the, the loan officer at the bank. And that's what we did. And believe it or not, they, of course, I think there was a co-signature along the way to help me get started. But they backed me into that and allowed me to um, lease that operation for one year. And I bought it for the next year. And that's how I got started there in Florida. And then um, we sold that farm in 1996. Um, interesting story. My wife stayed in Florida to run the farm in Florida while I came to South Carolina to manage the one. I was hired to come to run R.W. DeBose here in South Carolina, which is now Titan Farms, the one I bought. But she stayed. She was a full-time school teacher, and she stayed in Florida to um, bring in the summer crops down there while I came up here and ran this farm just to make sure that we really wanted to, to make that leap, giving up your own farm and going to work for somebody else. 
And um, that all proved out to be very successful for us. And we knew the gentleman that we were coming to work for in South Carolina at some point in time, and we would have the opportunity to lease and buy his farm as well. So that's kind of the reason why we did it. We wanted to get bigger into the peach industry, and she was from South Carolina, so moving a little bit closer back to home, that gave us a unique opportunity to to do that. And um, so those are the the challenges you have getting started where your your wife's working a full-time job but then coming home and working with you on the farm, I mean, our early years were quite interesting, to say the least. Yeah, I, I can absolutely 100% relate to that. Um, two questions related to the Florida farm. Was it scary when, you know, you're 22 years old and you sign a note for a farm? Was that scary? Like, do you remember being scared? <laughs> I, I think I was um, probably a very ambitious and um had complete confidence in what I could do. But, yes, later on finding out about all the risk profile and everything that goes into it, um, it's it's completely different when you're the owner. Um, and all my experiences up until then were just me being a manager, never seeing behind the scenes and pulling back the curtain of all the financial things that go into it. So shortly into it, when you realize you're responsible for that note that you just signed and that mortgage is quite bigger than most people's you know houses and stuff like that. So, um but no, I never say I was scared of it. It was just something that you knew you had a sense of responsibility, and you know. So we jumped into it, and luckily in 1992, which was our first year of, as owners, we had a good year. This was the year I got married to my wife, and um, and then come 1993, where we had an off-season hurricane in March, and we lost our peach crop. Um, so I was up one year and down another year, and I can remember um, getting a disaster loan through the. Um, Oh, I guess back then it was the wasn't the Farm Service Agency, but it was whatever the USDA office was called there. And I could remember some high-ranking official telling me that, you know, they had given these loans or disaster loans out before and never been paid back and stuff like that. And he basically insinuated that he didn't think that I would ever pay this back. And the very next year, in 1994, I wrote that check back to the federal government and paid them all back in one year. Um, I'm just somebody that you know personally challenged me I kind of took it as a personal challenge and you know so you you go through those things but luckily you have those things to get started and they're great teachers along the way and have always made me remember that story because you know one year you can be up and the next year you can be down so and farming you got to plan plan for those rainy days so then when you when you were going to South Carolina to work um, for RW DeBose um, you knew at that point that there would be a lease to own opportunity. So it wasn't like you sold your farm and went to work for him not knowing that in advance. There was the implied, but there was no guarantee. So, yes, when we sold the farm, and so, you know, coming to South Carolina in 95 and my wife staying down there was kind of a hedge your bets type situation. I, <laughs> you know, I really looked at his farm strongly. I really knew the people um, that were selling the crop, and so I – you know, but you never know everything. So I agreed to come up and leave my wife behind and um, come run this farm that summer. And if you can remember, this is just when cell phones came out. So, I mean, we had the bag phone yeah. of all things. And she had one in Florida and I had one. And, of course, reception was not any better than it is today sometimes. But we would talk during the day. And, you know, she stayed down there and was able to, to bring in that crop. And then that crop starts a lot earlier and finishes. So by about the I think about the end of June, she was able to join me in South Carolina. And so that fall, we had a decision to make, and the decision was is whether we were going to sell the farm in, in Florida or, you know, or, or leave South Carolina and go back to the farm. And 
we knew that this farm had a lot of potential, but I did ask the owner then, I said, you know, can you give me a contract? And he would not give me a contract. He just implied that, yes, this was my intention. He said that he had no sons and, and everything. And so we kind of had an understanding, but there was no guarantee. But a lot of times there is no guarantee in farming anyway, but we took it at face value that if we worked hard that we thought opportunities would be there, and that's exactly what we did. And so from 96 to 99, I was the hired farm manager, and then in 99 I had a um, – and I won't say it was this easy because it, I was actually leaving the farm in 1999. The gentleman had not come through with a lease purchase agreement, and every year it was talked about and nothing was ever done. But um, So I'd actually taken another job. I was going to be a financial um, farm consultant with the university um, system, the extension service, and and lo and behold, then a contract appeared on my desk for a lease purchase agreement that was a three-year lease. And so we leased it in 99, and then we executed the purchase in 2001. So, um, you know, nothing's always easy, but again, it was those those challenges that have made us better at being who we are as business owners and respecting everything that we have and never taking anything for granted. So, you know, when, when you didn't have anybody to leave it to you and you didn't have anything to start with, you know, all the different challenges you had to face along the way to get to even get to where we are today so you never take them for granted and always know that there's going to be something around the corner that's going to surprise you but if you plan for it accordingly you should be okay yeah that's something my husband and i talk about a lot because we um started our dairy uh my husband grew up around a cow dairy um his family milks cows but there was an opportunity to return and i grew up um kind of similar situation on a beef cow operation so when we started our sheep dairy, same thing, like it from the ground up and you really do like, like to your point, know like all of the, the literal sweat, tears and late nights that are required to make that happen. Um, so there is a little bit different Well, I mean, I don't think there's ownership. another way to start out sometimes. And I don't begrudge anybody that, you know, comes from a family operation and they're, you know, they get to go back into that. But the beauty of the fact that we had to buy our farms and build them from the ground up, we've done every job there is. I mean, there's not a job within this operation that I haven't done physically myself and, and everything. And so that's that was the beauty of it for me because just probably just like you all when you got started out, I mean, we would literally, my wife would go to school, teach all day. I would go to the fields and we'd harvest all day, and this is down in Florida, then we would start packing usually that evening about 7 o'clock at night, um, and we might not get to, done until 1 or 2, and then I'm staying up doing payroll. And there were little times, and we joke about it now, we borrowed money on credit cards to make pay, to pay payroll payments because things just, you know, the cash flow was there, but it might not have been at the right timing. And the, some of the stupid stuff we did just as business owners, just believing in the dream and mm -hmm. fortunately it working out for us. And um you know, that was the launch pad. So when we sold the farm and kind of this would be an odd way to explain it to people, but when we made the the challenge to we were gonna sell the farm in, in nineteen ninety six and, and move to South Carolina permanently, we knew there was no way to do that, um, you know, just with a real estate agent or anything else. So I actually put the farm up for an absolute auction. Um kind of roll the dice, risk it all at one time and we broke the land up into several parcels and we had the equipment and everything and um, fortunately, um, back in those days, ag equipment was bringing good money and the land was, um, you know, 1990 lands were bringing good money. And so we were able to walk out of that. Um, in fact, by the second, 
by the sale of the second parcel, I knew that I had covered my mortgages and I, that I would cover my mortgages, I should say. And so I did that and was able to nest egg that money. And we we sat on that money to be you know, how we used the nest egg to get started in South Carolina when the opportunity rose here. So, but it's just all those different things that back then, you know, we were we were a two person team that did everything in the mm-hmm. operation. And then you've always worried about the the book stuff later, you know, late at night or Friday nights when you're trying to make payroll and stuff like that. It was, you know, we did it all. So it's a good way to start, though. It really taught us a lot. I can relate to that. So then when you bought the farm in 99, um, you how how big was the farm then? So we leased it in 99. And so the operation was about 1500 acres of peaches and didn't grow any vegetables. Um, I started growing 30 acres of bell pepper um, that fall, so nothing to compete with the peaches, and we we grew that um, over the next couple of years. And while we were still in the lease operation, we weren't able to grow it a whole lot because the way the lease worked is we were we were basically paying, you know, the owner. And since we didn't know whether we would have the opportunity to buy it because it was a lease purchase, and there was a lot of conditions to that purchase agreement happening. So we kind of maintained a certain level during that period of three years, and then. When we bought the farm, it was about 1,650 acres of peaches, and we were growing about 60 acres of vegetables. And then for the next 20 years, we have grown, um, well, I guess really the 17, next 17 or 18 years, we grow, we've grown about 20% a year on average to where, as I said, this year we've got 6,200 acres of peaches. We'll grow about 600 acres of bell pepper this year and about almost 1,000 acres of broccoli um, and we now employ, I can remember then, we went into the H-2A program with our labor in 1999, the year I took over the operation, because I knew that having legal access to labor was our, our biggest challenge. We started out with 175 H-2A workers, which was our complete need of, um, of migrant workforce, and this year we'll employ 840 um, H-2A workers. So, And there's a lot of permanent jobs, too. I think we had four full-time employees back then and to now we have 54 full-time employees on top of all that so as you can see quite a bit of growth over those years yeah that's really impressive um i when i was reading like i said i was reading the stories um about you guys and i was reading about your h2a workers i was super impressed about your 92 percent annual return rate on your h2a workers how do you how do you how do you make that happen well, actually, it's now even higher. The last couple of years, it's been right at 98%, not counting new positions open, but just workers that we've, you know, all our workers returning the next year. And it really happened over time, and we always had a strong return rate, but we really started investing into our people and, and just, you know, just a whole mentality towards these aren't just migrant workers. These are part of our family that our farm would not be able to be in existence if it wasn't without these workers. And if we want to grow and sustain our grow, our, you know, our acreage growth and everything else like that, we had to invest into our workers. So what we started doing is, you know, just like most good businesses, you start having employee reviews and, and everything. And we had this all the way down with our, even our, you know, the newest picker on the, on the, on the site. 
And based on those, as we were growing, we gave them opportunities to refer new people. So what we learned, and you know, my engagement with my workers has always been very strong, and I learned that a couple of things through that whole process. One, if a worker came over here for about eight months and he had eight months of work, that he would not have to go back home and work. Because, again, if they had a full-time job in Mexico, it's hard for them to leave that job and to come here. So, one, right. we had to get them enough employment here to where they could financially survive those few months where we didn't have work. The other thing was, is as we were growing to that, we realized that one person was supporting, on average, 15 people back home. So mm-hmm. the more family members that they bring in to come here and work, you know, then the less their responsibility to their family was and the more they'd be able to keep their money to themselves. And the next thing you know, they're going back and they're Believe it or not, they're the richest young men in their in their small communities because they're going back with a lot of money and savings, and they're marrying the prettiest girls in town. And then next thing you know, they're having children. And we just we really wanted to make sure we understood their lives, what was important to them. So we you know because we were sharing with them what was important to us, but it was just actually engaging in those workers and getting a good understanding of of what they needed because you know people say all the time well you know why don't you hire locally well we've always tried to hire locally but if anybody knows anything about the h2a program we have to do a very extensive labor search and there's just not people wanting to do these jobs and so we've just built our workforce up and i couldn't have done it without them and of course if you look at our growth going from 175 to 800 people that graph just looks like our acreage where you look at going from 1500 to 6,000 acres and added on the vegetables so they now run very important jobs they're packing shed directors line leaders you name it um, spray supervisors we've got a trained workforce some people have been with us 19 years I think that's important to point out because I think when most people think of h2a work workers and the h2a workforce they think of people that are like maybe literally picking peaches but what I'm hearing you say is that these guys are and gals are are managers in a lot of instances as well. Oh, that's there's no doubt about it. I mean, just on the harvesting side, there is 22 supervisors on the harvesting side that will manage anywhere from 16 to 24 people each, and these are all long-time experienced workers. And you know, some people say, "Well, you just you just promote the fastest worker." No, you really don't. You look for the the people that have kind of coaching capabilities, people that care about one other people to do well. Usually, your fastest picker is a good worker. But a lot of times they're they're more self oriented than they are you know wanting to make sure the the team does well, so to speak. So we spend a lot of time trying to identify people. I coached for quite a bit of my um, you know professional career as well, so I was a full time high school football coach on top of it. But you know you've got to find the people that are are leaders and who want to take time to explain and teach other people how to do it and again because we're a seasonal operation so we don't have packing operations year round so we had to train um our people to run these things so this year we'll have five packing lines all running at the same time two of them will run two shifts a day meaning two 12-hour shifts and they'll run around the clock and these are all manned and supervised by h2a workers who have trained under us and have developed this and we now have the most state-of-the-art um, computerized packing line in Stoneford in the, in the world we think and um, I mean the technology I don't even know how to run it which is scary because I've run every packing <laughs> line in the world to this one but um, I mean we've got digital cameras out there and we've got people that are running these camera systems and using the visual systems on how to grade fruit but just the complexity of running these systems and they're being run by h2a workers and 
um, they build their teams, and you know we just look for that quality within. And again, it's the matter that they know this company is their company. They've been here from the very beginning. They've worked their way up, and they see we we've made sure that they see that there's an opportunity for advancement. And a lot of times when you challenge people and they know that they can improve and, and move their way up if they want to, they will step up. And we've seen that more times than not. Yeah. So one question I have related to that is what happens if through the H-2A program, you you have to apply for those visas, right? What, what happens to your farm if, if that paperwork process gets snagged up? Has well, that happened? It's always a concern, but luckily with Peaches, we're able to kind of know ahead of time when our needs are going to be. We've been doing it for so long, but, you know, Mother Nature throws curveballs at you all the time. And there was a, a challenge, uh, I can't remember exactly when it was, four or five years ago now, where the um, actually the State Department's computer broke, of all things. And this was a big <laughs> story, but, you know, they could not print visas for two weeks. Um, well, you know, luckily we they had don't have a backup. In, but we also had workers that were being held up to come because they couldn't get their visas. But I had a lot of friends who hadn't, you know, that weren't in my industry, but say they were, one of them was a, a cherry grower out west, and his he'd been doing this for year in and year out too, and he planned on his workers arriving on Saturday and starting work on Monday. And cherries are very very perishable. Well, he didn't get his workers, um, and he didn't know he wasn't going to get his workers till five days before that. So that is a risk within this program um, because of how quick and how tight the timelines are. And, you know, that's why a lot of people haven't adapted to it because, again, if you only have a six-week harvest and you, your workers show up two weeks late, which that hasn't happened often, but it has happened twice in the last um, 10 years that I'm aware of, then that's a very concerning situation. Um, we're fortunate enough that we bring our workers in. We start in January with pruning where it's not as time sensitive and everything else. But again, right now I'm planning on crossing. I just crossed um, 54 workers this past week and I've got another 54 coming in. And if they don't come in on the right time, then it can be impact us. Um, fortunate to say we've never had a negative, a big impact from it, but it is a concern. And I'm a very big advocate for the H-2A program. I've testified before Congress several times. I've worked with congressional leaders on how to reform the bill and everything else like that. So kind of know most of the ins and outs of it, um, why it's not used in other areas and why it is used. But um, it definitely needs reforming, but this is the program we have to work with, and we've just made sure that we are dedicated to do it. I have a full-time staff person who does nothing but monitor the H-2A program and make sure that we have everything dotted right and our T's crossed, and um, so the paperwork should be timely. But the government can get in the way sometimes. <laughs> so in 2016, you guys um, built a $10 million frozen fruit plant that processes <laughs> now you can say that's about 17 million dollar frozen fruit plant but yes okay 17 um, million frozen fruit and um peach purees so one one thing that i was interested about well obviously you have some interesting partners in that plant um naked juice company and then go go squeeze were the two that i read about which my daughter is one and she loves some go go squeeze peaches um, so that's kind of fun to know that they come from your farm. But one thing that I was interested in, in learning about, so you, you built this plant in 2016, and then I, I read that you had a really bad um, frost incident in 2017. How, how do you overcome something like that? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, 
one of the interesting things is people say, well, how'd you build your farm up? And, you know, how, how were you able to cash flow everything? And I was very fortunate from the, even in, in Florida, um, and facing adversity in 93 to one year into the business. But we've always been able to, I say always, if we've had a bad year and we were, we were struggling, we were able to get assistance through that and then catch back up very quickly. In South Carolina, we were very fortunate to be able to cash flow almost from the day one. The first real um, adversity we faced was in 2007 where we had a complete freeze on our crop. So we had a number of years underneath our belt and we, we grew by paying for everything as we went. And that was our philosophy for the longest time. Then about in 2000 and it's still it really started about 2013. We realized that we were the second largest peach producer in the country. We had major retail partners, and and we also saw some trends that were indicating that our industry. We felt that our industry was poised to grow, and and um, and we wanted to capture on that. We were already the largest on the East Coast, but we had some things we needed to do, and. Um, kind of get into your answer here shortly, but so the first thing we did was in 2015 we put in a brand new packing line. We upgraded our packing shed with all the food safety upgrades. There was a um, listeria scare in stone fruit in 2014, so we learned from that. Um, you know, it wasn't our operation, but it was in the industry, and so we were able to talk to those owners and we put in, you know, improvements in our food safety, and that's when we put in the brand new packing line, um, and we spent about nine million dollars on that. So all of a sudden we were borrowing money which we hadn't borrowed a lot of money other than you know our original borrowings and so we had made some money we spent some of our money but we also borrowed money and that went in 2015 and everything was going good and so 2016 comes along and we agreed to build the processing plant um, which was originally going to be about a 12 13 million dollar project and um, so 16 unfortunately wasn't a good year for us we only had about 60 percent of a peach crop processing um, the learning curve on processing was extremely steep I just kind of I don't think I assumed anything, but I just took it for granted that we have always been good at processes. We were very good at growing. We're very good at packing. But um, to go into the processing world, the, the learning curve, as we now call it, about it was straight up. It wasn't steep. It was just straight up and, and everything. But so we came out of that year not in not in our best position. It was a it was a down year for us and first down year in many years for us. And then, as you're right, 17 came along and the plant is obviously designed to run off of our our waste, our downgraded product from our fresh operation. And when 2017 came along, and we lost you know 87 percent of our crop in one night the impact i had not factored in what the impact was going to be to the to the frozen food plant where you had all these um you know loans you 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 took out to build this thing and you'd run all your performer models and everything else but all of a sudden i didn't have the raw product to to run the plant with and to get to um producing the you know some of the contracts that we agreed to with some of our vendors such as you mentioned matern who does the go go squeeze such as that um we also knew this was our second year, and we had a lot of improvements and a lot of changes that we made from year one to year two. So, in doing that, we knew we needed to run, um, but we didn't have any. We didn't have enough fruit to run with, so we had to kind of make the decision that we were going to buy some fruit and run, even though that was going to it was going to cause us to operate at a loss. We still knew for the future we had to invest in the future and make a decision to improve our efficiencies and also verify our yields because obviously in year one you're not as efficient as you're going to be and everything else so 
We made a tough decision in 17. Even though we'd lost most of the peach crop and everything else, we decided to run that plant and make the further investment into that plant to to put us in a position for this year where we we know what our yields are going to be or we we think we know what our yields are going to be and as we go out and um, start working on these contracts for this coming year. And so a lot of things happened, you know, we're tough in the beginning of 17 and it was a down year for us as i said it was it was our worst year on record um as a total company financially but there was a lot of positive things that came out of it so um the processing plan like i said we established our yields we put in a frozen um, cup line these are the four ounce cups that go to the school lunch program so we we did four million cups last year of peach dices and we've already won a contract for eight million of those cups this year, and we hope to win more. So, it really put us in a position to go forward. We just had to amortize that loss over a little bit longer time and put it on the balance sheet, and just know that the repayment's going to take a little bit longer than we thought it would. But got our heads down and ready to go to work. So, Chalmers, can you put to numbers to you know you said eighty-seven percent loss. Can you put numbers to what that what that means from a dollar standpoint for listeners? That was a $30 million night. Um, very simply put is the revenue from the peaches loss would have been in excess of $30 million. So did it cost me $30 million? No, it didn't because I didn't have all the cost associated with them at that time. But there's more that goes into it than just your loss of your crop. I mean, the first thing was our H2A workers. Um We'd experienced this one time before, like I said, in 2007, but we had 640 H-2A workers in 2016. All 640 of those workers, or I think it was 620 of them, were scheduled to come back to work in 2017. I had about, I think I had right at 400 on the farm the day of the freeze, and we had another 100 and something coming within two weeks. I had to, one, inform the 200 people that were still in Mexico that they weren't going to have a job. I had to then send a hundred of our workers home that were here, and that means you just not only affected those three hundred individuals, but going back to what the average was I told you before, each individual takes care of about fifteen people back home. You can factor in real quickly that we affected about four hundred, I mean forty-five hundred people. Um, that is tough. Um, I don't know if every business owner thinks about it that way as I do, but, I mean, that was my first responsibility was to those workers and just, you know, it's an act of God. There's nothing we can do about it. They understood, but it took clear communication and everything, and we were able to rotate some of our workers. So we did a lot that we would have not normally done. We let workers only stay here for six months, and we brought other workers back at a, at a cost to us. But, again, it really wasn't a cost that I appreciated because I wanted to take care of my workers. But... Then there's the retail part of it. Um, you know, the consumers, you know, on any given year, we'll sell 90 million peaches with Titan stickers on them all across this country, and all of a sudden we don't have those. So you had to go to your retail partners that you work with. So you just think about it. I don't know where all the stores are, but, you know, Harris Teeter, um, Wegmans, Walmart, people that we supply annually with peaches, and their consumers have really gotten to know our peaches and trust our brand and everything else like that. We're all of a sudden having to tell them, we're the second largest peach grower in the country, but we're not going to have peaches for you this year. So the losses go way beyond us. And, you know, as Lorianne and I are the last two that I'd ever even consider worrying about, you know, you've got your workers, whether they're full-time employees, which we were able to keep all of them employed, but you've got your seasonal workers that we affected. And then it's your retail partners. So there's a lot of concern is if I give up this market share this year, will I be able to get that market share back? And 
So we have all those concerns. Luckily, those have mostly been satisfied this year that our retail partners are back and excited to have our peaches. And we got our H2A workers back, and they're excited to be here. So, But there's just a lot that goes into it when you have those kind of nights. And, you know, the impact, you can put a dollar value to it, but the mental impact of of how you deal with it and, and everything else, it, it takes a while to get over. And, of course, you got your financial partners, your your lenders, so to speak, that you better really do some quick um, explanations and how you're going to do things <laughs> and, you know, the way you're going to get through it. And what they like to know is, just like everybody, if you have a plan, you know, if you can articulate a plan, if you can put a plan to paper and um, and it looks good, and, you know, best thing to do is communicate. And that's what those years will teach you. And, um, you know, like I said, you've got a plan for it. Unfortunately, we had two very aggressive years and and um, growing before that, spending quite a few dollars. So it's, um, you know, we're having to realign ourselves now and, you know, rebuild back up our balance sheet and build up some cash reserves. And that's what 2018 is all about this year is executing and being successful and getting ourselves poised back to go back, you know, to grow for the future. Picking yourself back up and getting dust off, sounds like. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, there's no quitting in this game at all, and we wouldn't want to. It's just, you know, um, hindsight 2020, should I have been aggressive to put in two major projects back-to-back and, you know, spend <laughs> that kind of money? But where my wife and I were, we were, you know, we're both right out about 50 years of age. We knew that we had at least 15 to 20 more years that we would like to work in the business and, and continue on. And so in doing that, we knew it was the optimum time to make those decisions. So I don't regret them by no means. Um, but the same token is, you know, I, I wish Mother Nature would have been a little bit more cooperative in 17. But 18 is looking good, and that's that's kind of where we're at now. Um, you know, no, no, no year's perfect, but I just um, I like where we're at today. I can tell you that. So you you talk a lot about um, some of the advantages of being a first generation farmer. Can you can you speak to that a little bit? Um, I'm specifically thinking of the times I've heard. Um, you know, one of the advantages of being a first generation farmer is that there's nobody sharing their opinions of how you should do things. <laughs> and maybe sometimes there should be somebody there sharing their opinions. <laughs> but um, I do I do believe a lot in it in advisors and consultants and stuff of like that. But no. Um, I think one of our biggest advantages is simply that, that I don't have a, a general, there's a lot of generational farms in my industry, meaning that, you know, the first generation, second generation, and now the third generation are all still in the same operation. And it can squash innovation, um, adaption to technology. So for us, we've, we've always been very keen to look, learn, and imp- implement new systems and everything else like that. And, you know, it's just always wanting to be better and you know you still got to go out and research it make everything's right but if you want to if you want to improve yourself daily there wasn't that type of mentality that i've seen and heard where well that's not the way we do it or that's not the way we did it then and everything like that we didn't have anybody telling us that's not we we had people that were hey if you want to do it this way go look at this technology and so that is truly been one of the best things now again um Probably sometimes my wife would tell you that I need somebody to kind of slow me down a little bit and make sure that I'm not too overly aggressive, but it served us well. And, I mean, we believe in technology. We believe in people. And there again, there's not too many people that I've ever met um, that works migrant labor that places the value on those. And I think that comes from the value that my father taught me growing up in the military was, you know, we just didn't have time for any racism or anything like that. 
people are people and you treat people with respect and you know you'd be surprised and um that's what we've always done with our workers and if you empower your workers and um you know the best thing about our company no doubt is the people we have whether it's the migrant worker coming from Mexico or whether it's our year-round employees they're the backbone of it that's the reason why we didn't when we took over the farm you know it was called RW DeBose and Son because it was a family operation and it was my wife and I that were risking everything but we took the name Titan because we didn't want to put our name on the door we we thought that the company belonged to everybody was working there and everybody walks around with a shirt that says Titan Farms on it and they're just as much a part of this business as we are and they've helped us grow and now I've brought in these young people that you know they got this technology and they understand computer systems and there's a lot you can do and if you get out of people's way if you if you empower them and you challenge them and you motivate them and then you get out of their way you'd be surprised what they can do what's the worst advice you've ever received you mentioned <laughs> that you work a lot with consultants I'm sure there's been bad bad advice the worst advice I ever got was actually from my uncle that got me in business in Florida and I can remember this to this day and oh it was it was a I think it was probably summer of 94 and we had an early peach crop and um, peaches you know this was back when there wasn't still a lot of South American imports so you go back you know 24 something years ago and the peaches were big but they were green and I called my uncle down to come out and look at them, and you know they had a red tip on them, and but they were getting a little bit soft. And he looked at me and he said, "Boy, you know what the color of money is?" And I said, "Yes, sir." And he said, "What is it?" I said, "Green." And he said, "Well, then pick them, because that's where you're going to get your money." Worst advice I ever got. And <laughs> I took that <laughs> advice that time, and I never took it again because those peaches were too green. And I mean, I shipped four tractor trailer loads to New York, and the market was 28 or $30, and you're sitting there thinking that's $45,000 leaving. And they got up there, and they probably brought $8. And um, I should have never done it, and it was bad advice, and I took it, and I never will again. So learn then. You never chase a dollar. You do everything right. <laughs> that's good advice right there. Well, it was one of those things where, I mean, and he was old school like that, and, you know, um, I knew better. I, I knew better completely, but... Like I said, you're coming off a freeze in 2003 where, you know, we had taken out, you know, a loan and everything to get through that year. And all you're thinking about them was paying it back. And that's when I learned that you can never put the dollar in front of everything else. You still got to have your values. And that's why our company logo is quality first. If you always stick to quality in the way you treat your people, quality in your crops, you'll never go wrong. And, you know, I just took some bad advice that time and learned from it. To what do you credit your success? Do you think it's skill or luck or a combination of both? I think it goes way beyond that. I, I will tell you that the real combination of my success has been the fact that I've had three different individuals in my life that were in, you could almost say all father-like at one time. My father, um, growing up in the military, taught me values from the day one, principles, character, the whole nine yards. And so having that and then, going to work when living with an uncle for six years during the summer who taught me that the only thing that he thought was important in life was work. And, you know, my, my father was the same way. My father was, a, you know, growing up and becoming a general officer was very much work dedicated to, you know, everybody goes, is it God, country, and family, or is it, you know, God, family, and country? You know, just however you go through those responsibilities. But my uncle was work, work, work. And then the third uncle that came along in my life was one that taught me that people were important, relationships were important, and everything else like that. So having those three mentors along the way, 
you know, just probably without a doubt have given me the opportunity. And then, you know, from there you just take it. Some of it was some of it was luck, some of it was skill, some of it was desire. I mean, I was driving a tractor trailer by the time I was 13 because I bugged my uncle to the point that he just finally put me in a truck and said, let's go learn how to drive because I'd ask him every day. Um, <laughs> so it was just that tenaciousness that, you know, I wanted to do um, and then was given the opportunity to do. And when, when somebody gives you an opportunity, the biggest thing you do is never try to disappoint them. Understand the value of the opportunity you've been given and work hard at it and appreciate it and never take it for granted and it'll serve you well. And, so I've done that, um, and now I try to give people those that same opportunities to where they can improve themselves. And you know, we have been fortunate. There's no doubt about it. If you, I mean, I graduated college with four thousand dollars to my name. My dad gave me four thousand dollars as a graduation gift. And I had no student loans. I paid for college. My dad helped me with college, and I had to pay for some of it because I wasn't necessarily the best student at times. And I got out of school, and they gave me four thousand dollars for a graduation present. I bought a truck, and from there I've built up to a very large farming operation, so um, there's some luck along the way, too. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, thank you for being on today, Chalmers. I'm really um, glad that we got to share your story, and I, I think that you have a lot of insight to share um, with farmers, no matter what stage they're at, whether they're just starting out or have been in the business a long time. Um, so thank you so much for being on today. Well, I appreciate it very much. and We do love what we do, and we love this industry, and we just can't help to support it in any way we can. So thank you for doing this, and look forward to working with you on other stories in the future. Yeah, well, until next week, um, that's been the First Year's Podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Hands are high.